Romans chapter 12, beginning in verses 1 and 2, Paul writes, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. For those of you who have been following along in the book of Romans, you might remember the theme of the book. If for whatever reason you've forgotten, it's found in Romans chapter 1 in verses 16 and 17 where Paul wrote, the just shall live by faith. And in that simple sentence were found the great themes of this book which he unfolds to us. Salvation and righteousness. Paul has spoken about sin in chapter 1 verses 18 all the way to chapter 3 verse 20. And then he spoke of salvation in chapters 3 and four, and five, and then he spoke about sanctification in chapters six, seven, and eight. He introduced us to the reality of the sovereignty of God in chapters nine, ten, and eleven, and now Paul is going to talk about the enormous subject of service, beginning now, all the way to chapter 15, verse 13. That service includes consecration to God in chapter 12, subjection to authorities in chapter 13, and then he invites us to consider the weak in chapter 14 and chapter 15. Paul will leave the digression about Israel's spiritual past and present and future, and now he wants to get to the practical matters where the rubber meets the road, about service and conduct of the committed Christian. It follows the form and style almost everywhere else in his writings. Paul usually talks about service first. And then he talks about, actually he talks about doctrine and then duty. He talks about belief and then he talks about behavior. Typically he'll talk about responsibility that follows revelation. First principle, then practice. And so the committed Christian, the committed Christian as far as Paul is concerned, is a person who embraces this notion of service. The committed Christian is the Christian who serves. If what we believe doesn't affect the way that we behave, then it winds up reinforcing the critics who claim that Christianity is a pretense and a fiction. It, it empowers and emboldens the critic when We say that Jesus has changed our life and then we live our lives as if they're really not changed. Roy Lauren writes, quote, All our professions, our desires, our ideals, our hopes, our intentions will count for nothing 
unless we manifest holiness in our thinking and in our speaking and indeed in all of the circles of daily life and activity, unquote. Paul's attention turns then to the theme of commitment, consecration, and service. And he basically says, this is God's will for your life. And I can say without fear or without hesitation that God desires and even requires service from each and every person who names the name of Jesus. Who says they love Jesus and they walk with Jesus. And of course he's not talking about a service that's disconnected from a heart condition. He's not talking about service that's disconnected from commitment. And service requires commitment. Commitment is something that is precious and rare and valuable in our culture. And rarely will people commit to anything or anyone. There was a farmer who had three sons. Ron, Don... And little John. They all had their names on the church rolls. But none of them ever attended church. Or had time for God. And then one day Don was bitten by a rattlesnake. And the doctor was called in. And they did all that they could to help Don. But the outlook was really, really bad. Recovery looked really, really dim. So they called in the pastor. And they apprised him of the situation. And the pastor arrived. And he began to pray. He prayed this prayer. Oh, wise and righteous father, we thank thee. That in thine wisdom thou didst send the rattlesnake to bite Don. He hasn't been in church in years. He has shown little interest in you. We trust that this experience will be a valuable lesson to him. And that it will bring him to genuine repentance. And now, oh father, will you send other rattlesnakes to bite Ron. Another one to bite little John. And a really big one, a big one to bite at their old man. For years they've done everything we know. We've done everything we know to get them to get serious with you. Thank you, Jesus, for rattlesnakes. (laughs) You know, it's really interesting. The preacher isn't so much interested that they have a commitment to church or even a commitment to each other. Because a commitment to church and a commitment to each other really becomes a meaningless commitment if there isn't a true connection. And commitment to Jesus. You know, John McCain was a former presidential candidate and senior senator from the state of Arizona. In 1973, the shift took place in America as some of the prisoners of war came home. And in the commencement speech of my graduating class in high school, there was one particular man named Alan Lurie. And he spoke to our graduating class. He was imprisoned with John McCain and he was imprisoned with a man um, named Lieutenant Commander Mike Christian. And McCain writes about his experiences 
in his book on files on leadership. And he writes, in the final years of our imprisonment, the North Vietnamese moved us from small cells with one or two prisoners to large rooms with as many as 30 or 40 men in a room. And we preferred this situation because of the companionship and strength that we could draw from our fellow prisoners. He writes, in addition to moving us to new quarters, our captors also let us receive packages and letters from home. And many men received word from their families for the very first time in several years. And the improved conditions were a result of public pressure that was put on North Vietnam by the world and the American public. He says, in our cell was one Navy commander, Lieutenant Commander Mike Christian. And over a period of time, Mike had gathered bits and pieces of red and white cloth that had come in from the various packages. And using a piece of bamboo, he fashioned it into a needle. And Mike sewed a United States flag on the inside of his church, one of the blue pajama tops that we all wore. And every night in our cell, Mike would put his shirt on the wall and he would say... And we would say the Pledge of Allegiance. I know that the Pledge of Allegiance may not be the most important aspect of your day. But at the time, it was one of the most important aspects of our day. And soon it became the most important aspect of our lives. This had been going on for some time until one of the guards came in as we were reciting the pledge and they ripped the flag off the wall. And they dragged Mike into another room and they beat him for several hours. And then they threw him back in the cell. Later that night, as we were settling down to sleep on the concrete slabs that was our beds, I looked over at the spot where the guards had thrown Mike. And there under the solitary light bulb, hanging from the ceiling, I saw Mike still bloody, his face swollen beyond recognition. He writes, Mike was gathering bits and pieces of cloth together. He was sewing a new flag. Unquote. By the way, he was shot down April 24th, 1967. He was released in 1973. And the thing that kept him going was the knowledge that one day he would return to his family. He knows about sacrifice and perseverance and commitment. He knew about the pressure that can come to bear. He knew what it was like that if you think differently, you act differently, that you're going to face challenges. Paul's appeal to the Christian to live a consecration and commitment comes from this deep-seated sense of reality and commitment. And he writes about the basis of commitment. I want you to look with fresh eyes and a new vision about what he's talking about. In the beginning, he says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. Do you remember Paul's prayer and plea 
in chapter 11, when you came to the end of the chapter, he talks about God's riches being unfathomable, God's judgments unsearchable, God's ways unknowable, God's wisdom and knowledge unobtainable, his resources inexhaustible. And that the Lord's grace has brought righteousness and salvation. And the spirit can control your mind and control your body and can control your will. And so Paul appeals. He appeals to the mercies of God to serve as a sufficient motivation that you'll present your bodies a living sacrifice. The motive, mercies of God. Manner. Present your bodies a living sacrifice means it's a refusal to conform to this world, but rather to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Paul's dedication and commitment. Think about this for just a moment. His dedication and commitment is based on love. Paul doesn't say, I command you. Rather, he says, I beseech you. That word beseech is very, very interesting in the original language. It's para, kaleo. Some of you might know that. It it, it was a word that was used to describe a summons or an invitation. It often meant to come alongside, to render help. We don't serve Christ in order to receive mercies. We've already received the mercy of grace, the the mercy of salvation, redemption, reconciliation. And so he uses that word, therefore, it makes its fourth appearance in the book of Romans. Romans chapter 3, verse 20. Therefore, he talks about the therefore of condemnation, that the whole world is guilty. In Romans chapter 5, verse 1, he talks about the therefore of justification. In Romans chapter 8, verse 1, he talked about the therefore of assurance. Therefore, because of the condemnation. Therefore, because of justification. Therefore, because of assurance. And now he brings it home with therefore, we have dedication. What are the mercies that he's appealing to? Why the sum and the substance of everything that he's talked about? Those are the mercies. The mercies of forgiveness. The mercies of justification. The mercies of assurance. And because Paul writes... He has given us grace. He has shown us mercy. He's imparted to us righteousness. We are forgiven. We're accepted. We're no longer condemned. We're no longer guilty. We have assurance. And because of all of those things, we can make a commitment. We can dedicate ourselves to the Lord Jesus Christ. We can give our all for him because he's given his all for us. Spurgeon used to say it this way. I feel that if I could live a thousand lives, I would live, I would like to live each and every one of them for Christ. And even then I would feel that they were all too little a return for his great love for me. Our commitment and service to Jesus is motivated not by force. Spurgeon knew that. 
It's not motivated by force or fear, but love and gratitude. We don't love and serve to obtain salvation. We do not commit in order to get forgiveness and help. We are saved to serve. We serve not on the basis of self-will, but rather on the presence of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. Remember, in this particular instance, salvation is not consecration. Salvation is the appropriation of eternal life in Christ. Consecration is the application of that life in the very real world in which you live. Salvation is getting something from God. Consecration is giving something to God. One is what God does for us. The other is what God does through us. And make no mistake about it, consecration isn't necessary to enhance or add to the character of salvation. It isn't like taking hot Tabasco and pouring it on red beans and rice on Mondays, which is where you should eat red beans and rice. It's actually to enhance our enjoyment of the life that we've been given, of the love that we've been given, of the, of the mercies that have been imparted to us. It's the practical application and use of, of, of the life of Jesus. And so he talks not just about that, he talks also about the character of commitment. So he moves, if you will, from the basis of commitment to the character of commitment. Look what he writes. He says that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Paul describes the character of commitment and, and he uses the language of sacrifice. He'll begin with an appeal to commitment or consecration and now he describes that act of commitment. And note that. Remember what I've already said. It's voluntary. You present your bodies a living sacrifice. By the way, the English word that we use to describe gifts that we give to one another, present, same idea. You present, it's like giving a gift. Whenever you give a gift, you make a present to someone. The decision is not made by compulsion or manipulation unless it's Christmas time and you feel really, really bad that you have to give people things that, who give you things. But I guess there's two kinds of presents. There's the ones that are given voluntarily. There's the ones that are given involuntarily. He's talking about a voluntary act of personal dedication based on conviction. And it's not necessarily a time to get into the Greek nuances, but it is the aorist infinitive. What does that all mean? It means that you present your bodies. It means to bring or to offer in a decisive act of dedication. 
You see, there were certain sacrifices that were offered, and you wouldn't you would give sacrifices over and over again, but there's only one thing that you can give one time. And so here the idea is a gift that is given not over and over again, but a gift that is given once and for all. In the Old Testament, the presentation of the offering was sometimes called the offering of the Holocaust. Animals were brought for sacrifice for sin. It would require the death of the animal. And so, in the ancient world of sacrifice, even among the pagans, it was usually death. In the ancient world of the Jew, it was the death of the animal. And there is a sense in which death still lingers. In what sense? We're dead to sin, but we're alive to Christ. And what might seem like a paradox becomes a recipe for Christian living. We carry an attitude of death towards the old sin nature, towards sinful thinking, towards sinful living. We carry the attitude of death toward the old sin nature, towards sinful living. Our eyes are now used for different things. Our ears are used for different things. Our hands and our bodies are used for different things. Instead of satisfying ourselves, instead of listening to flattery, instead of spreading gossip, we listen to things differently and we speak about things differently. By the way, in chapter 6, Romans, he uses the same word, present. Only there, it was translated yield. Do not yield or present your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves to God as those who are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. So we present, we turn over, we yield. The idea being we make our head and our heart available to God. So what does that mean? What does it mean to be a living sacrifice? It's Paul's way of basically using an expression that we find repulsive. It's the expression total commitment. You mean like the week after New Year's Day when you go to the gym and you sign a contract and you, you sign on the dotted line that you're going to show up every single day and you're going to work out and you're going to do this and you're going to do that. I know why your mind went there. Because you think of, in terms of total commitment of, of, as yet one more thing that I can disappoint or break. But that's not actually what he's talking about. He's not inviting you to make a commitment so that you'll break your commitment. He's actually inviting you to think about your life in terms of the totality of what it means to be a Christian. You know, some person might ask you the question, are you a Christian? And you'll say yes. If they ask you the question, are you a committed Christian? You might say, well, it all depends on what you mean by committed. And if you go, turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. 
And then you read this passage to him and you say, you know what, I I think I mean commitment by what Paul seems to be talking about in this particular passage. There are only two living sacrifices that are mentioned in the Bible. One is the sacrifice of Isaac that's mentioned in Genesis chapter 22 where the first mention of love takes place. You know the story how the Lord says to Abraham, take your son, your only son, whom you love. The first mention of love in the Bible is the love of a, of a dad for his son. He says, take your son to the place where I'm going to show you. And remember, in Abraham's mind, his son wasn't just simply his son. He wasn't just the physical progeny. He wasn't just a way to carry on the family name. This particular son was going to be a son of promise and a son of hope because God had a plan and a purpose that was going to unfold in the generations to come. And Abraham was convinced that if he was going to, in fact, offer his son that God would somehow still have to keep his promise. A living sacrifice has to be a willing sacrifice. And Isaac had to be a willing sacrifice. Most people forget that Isaac was a fully grown man in Genesis chapter 22. When the Lord said, Abraham, take your son, your only son. And Abraham breaks the news to Isaac. Guess what? You're the sacrifice. Isaac could just as easily have said, guess what? Not today, old man. If anything or anyone's going to be thrown on the altar, it's going to be you. But he had to, in humility and submission, willingly go forward. You know, the other mention of a living sacrifice is Jesus. The Bible says that he comes to the earth. He's given a body, a human body, a body that was going to be used to conform to God's will and speak God's message and accomplish God's purpose. And the Bible says he's going to voluntarily set his face towards Jerusalem. He's going to voluntarily walk in the direction of sacrifice. He's going to voluntarily offer himself as the sacrifice for sin. And so Paul's admonition is voluntary, present. And then Paul's admonition is personal. Your bodies. You know, the world teaches that our bodies belong to ourselves. And before we came to Christ, many of us used our bodies selfishly. For sinful purposes. In order to satisfy ourselves. And we sometimes forget how important our bodies are to God. We, we can ignore our mind and we can ignore our body. We can abuse both our mind and we can abuse our bodies. There's lots of different ways we can do that. So when Paul writes, present your bodies, it's a presentation once and for all. It's like a commitment. It isn't like a commitment. It is a commitment. Like marriage. When you commit to your partner in marriage, you commit for life. We used to say, until death do us part. 
And some people include in their wedding vows these days, or until I'm sick of you, or I'm disgusted with you, or I don't love you anymore, or I don't want you anymore, or I don't need you anymore. You know, in every single wedding now, when I do traditional vows and I say to one person, to say to the next person, till death do us part, I, I add, or the return of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Those are the two things that get you off the hook. Yeah. Death or the consummation of all things at the return of Christ. That's the idea. It's a commitment. And so when Paul asks this question or encourages the question, it's okay for you to say to yourself, is this exactly what I've done? Have I dedicated myself, committed myself, presented myself? And remember, when he's talking about body, I think he actually means your physical body. I think it begins there, but it doesn't end there. It begins with your body, but it becomes a way of saying your whole life. It's everything that you do with your body. You may have wrongfully thought, well, I thought God only wanted my soul, but you would be mistaken. The Lord invites you to offer your body and your mind and your soul. And so what does all of this mean? What does commitment mean? What does consecration mean? Number one, you present your body to God. And of course, that simply means you give your body to God. And there are two reasons why you do it. Number one, because it's the right thing to do in light of all that God has done for you. That's Paul's argument. It's the right thing to do because of everything that God has done for you. And it makes perfect sense. It is your reasonable service. Logican, latrean. These are two words that Paul will use together to mean a thoughtful worship. Because, again, it's, it's a, a way of speaking about worship. If we worship the Lord apart from commitment to the Lord, our worship is false. In other words, for the person who says, I'll go to church to fill the time. I'll go to church to give a good moral example to the children. I'll go to church because I want to retard and escape the, the, the deterioration that's taking place in the moral culture, then you're missing the whole point. The Bible doesn't ask you to join an assembly of people to retard the downward spiral of the moral collapse of our country. The Bible invites you to be a part of a worship community because you love the Lord Jesus, because you're connected to God in Christ. It's your reasonable surface of worship. So you present your body to God, you give him your mind in verse 2 at the beginning, you give him your will at the end of verse 2. Paul writes about this elsewhere in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9. He says, therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing To him, that's our goal. Usually, that's what you do. You define the problem in terms of the goal. What is it that you're trying to accomplish? I'm trying to please him. How do you please him? 
Give him your body. Give him your mind. Give him your will. In 1 Corinthians 6.20 it says, For you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's, which means they belong to God. Paul describes the commitment as voluntary, present. Paul describes the commitment as personal. That means, wives, you can't do it for your husband. Husbands can't do it for their wives. Fathers can't do it for their children. Children can't do it for their parents. And he uses the imagery of an altar. This is an image that has escaped us in our culture, in our society. In the first century, whether you were a pagan or whether you were an observant Jew, if you were a person who believed in everything or nothing, you would have been familiar with the image of an altar. It was the place where they would sacrifice the animals. And it was a place of sacrifice, but it was a place of blood. And it was a place of sacrifice and blood. And depending on how much you could take, you would either stay far, far away from that particular place. Because it's a disgusting place. If you've ever been in a butcher shop and you spent any amount of time in a butcher shop... The images of animals being sacrificed and blood being spilt can be very, very unsettling. Paul is talking about a spiritual metaphor. He's he's talking about sacrifice, and he's using it in a spiritual sense. He's not talking about human sacrifice or that we kill each other. He really is talking metaphorically and spiritually, but Behind that metaphor is this image of blood and sacrifice. Because real commitment usually isn't antiseptic. You know, we go to a hospital and we go to an emergency room and it's supposed to be clean and you have white sheets and you have white bed sheets and you put on white gowns and it's all very clinical, it's all very antiseptic, it's all very, very non-bloody, but the moment that you slice something open or you start to repair and the blood starts to go, even under those antiseptic circumstances, it can get pretty, pretty difficult. And sometimes that's exactly what we want. We want an antiseptic Christianity that is clean and convenient But sometimes our walk with Christ and our service to the Lord isn't clean. And it isn't convenient. This is why Paul will talk about the demands of commitment in verse 2. He says, and do not be conformed to this world. But rather be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That you may prove what is the good And acceptable and perfect will of God. Here Paul reveals the demands of commitment. We no longer conform to the world. Rather we're transformed. One is negative. The other is positive. One we do. The other we cannot do. And so the word conformed means to pattern. 
after this world or to be poured into this world's mold. And so when he says, and do not be conformed to this world, it translates a Greek word that you're all going to be familiar with once you hear it, schema. We get our own English word from that, schemes. But schema would mean something else. It it could mean the mold or the shape. The New Living Translation translates this, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way that you think. Then you'll know what God wants you to do and you will know how good and pleasing and perfect his will really is. So here schema means made like. Do not be made like the world. And by the way, the world doesn't so much mean the physical planet. It's not talking about all of the beautiful places where you go. It's not talking about the majesty of the Grand Canyon or the beauty of Niagara Falls. It's not talking about tropical rainforests in the Amazon. It's talking about the human world that sets itself in opposition to the things of God, to the plans of God, to the purposes of God, what God is trying to accomplish, what the Lord wants. This is the temporary world. This is the world that is corrupt and temporal and fallen and cursed. We could paraphrase this, don't be conformed to the schemes of this passing age. So if the world controls your thinking, you're a conformer. And if God controls your thinking, you're a transformer. And make no mistake about it, your mind is being molded. It's being shaped. It's being formed. Or it's being transformed. Even modern neuroscientists understand the concept of neuroplasticity. We used to say in the 1970s, you are what you eat. Make no mistake about it. Now, now, you are what you think. You are what you think about the most. You are what preoccupies you the most. When you get up in the morning and you live your life throughout the day. We live in a world that desperately depends on opinion polls. Hey, let's just see what everybody thinks. You know, this is the big, biggest frustration of any Bible teacher. Imagine you get a group of people together and you go, hey, what do you think? And what do you think? And you, what, what do you think? And I, I learned early on when I was a very young Christian that we were pooling our ignorance about the passage. Well, you know, this is what I think. And you go, I couldn't help but noticing that your thoughts are based on nothing that's connected to the text. Now, don't get me wrong. That doesn't mean that you don't have opinions or thoughts or ideas or that you draw conclusions. But opinions, ideas, thoughts, and conclusions are often informed or misinformed. There's a reason why the Bible says 
In Proverbs 23, 7, for as he thinks in his heart, so is he. Jesus says in the New Testament, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Have you ever said to yourself or someone you love, I didn't mean to say that. It just came out. And your loved one said, I think it just came out of your heart. Because it's in your heart. There's something inside that's wrong. There's something inside that's gone terribly wrong. And so if we're going to be able to change what's wrong, we have to change what's on the inside. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 31, Paul write, wrote, And those who use this wor- world is not misusing it, for the form, same word, is passing away schema. 2 Corinthians 4.18, while we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporary, but the, the things which are not seen are eternal. Paul elsewhere will talk about that there's a physical world in which we see and we interact with, and there's an invisible world in which we see and we interact with. And the invisible world which we see with our spiritual eyes will begin to inform us. But a divided Christian, a divided Christian, a divided Christian is an unhappy Christian. If you're constantly living with one foot being thoughtfully informed by what this world has to say and the other foot informed by what God has to say through the person of Christ and the word of God, you quite literally will become theologically schizoid. The Bible says that a person who's divided in their thinking is gets tossed to and fro like the waves of the ocean. We cannot be divided in our loyalties and happy in Christ. I believe that the Bible's true when it suits me. I believe that the instruction is helpful if it's not hurtful. If it doesn't interfere with my life, if it doesn't interfere with my schedule, if it doesn't interfere with my family, and don't get me wrong, I'm not suggesting that you abandon your family, you abandon your schedule, or that you not have priorities straight, but what I am am saying is that if Jesus is not at the top of the priority list, if Christ and his life and his love and his sacrifice and his mercies aren't the thing that deeply informs you, then you will be divided. In popular culture, we speak of split personalities or bipolar conditions. Whatever else you believe about that, let me ask you a simple question. Do you think people who live in two worlds are normal? Do you think they're happy? So what are the constant companions of the committed and the consecrated Christian? A transformed mind? A reasonable service? And this is the secret simply, not just simply of a good Christian life, but a great Christian life. You see, the great Christian life begins with the great thoughts 
about Jesus. It was A.W. Tozier who said that you, that the thoughts that you think about God are the most important thoughts that you will ever think. Because what you think about God and what you think about Christ is going to inform how you really, really live. And there's only one way, there's only one way, there's only one way to resist and refuse the conformity that comes from the outside. And that's the transformation that takes place on the inside. When you feel yourself being squeezed from all directions on the outside, the only way that you're going to be able to deal with the appropriate tension is to place pressure on the inside and start forcing it back out. And so you know what happens? You begin to think with a mind that's devoted to Christ and a heart that's committed to Christ. This is the only way that you're going to resist and refuse conformity. Resisting and refusing conformity isn't going to be Nancy Reagan theology. Well, just say no. That's really not going to work. You have to be able to say yes to Jesus, to his life, to his love, to the principles. Paul doesn't simply want the Christian to refrain from acting like people in the world. Paul invites the Christian to be like Christ. To live like Jesus to put on the mind of Christ, to begin to evaluate the world in which you're living in terms of what Jesus would think about this particular issue or that particular issue. This isn't an artificial legalism where your life is characterized by what you do or don't do. Are you a committed Christian? Well, of course I'm a committed Christian. How do you know you're a committed Christian? By the things that I don't do. That's not the point that Paul is making. Committed Christianity is not simply evaluated in terms of what you don't do, but in terms of what you do in Christ. It's a transformation of the heart and the mind, and we're renewed in our thinking. And so here's the idea. Paul's connecting the dots. If you're renewed in your thinking, then you're going to be renewed in your speaking, and then you're going to be renewed in your living. Again, for you old-timers, Roy Lauren writes, quote, This renewing of the mind refers to the adjustment of our moral and spiritual vision to the mind of God, unquote. He goes on and he says, quote, This adjustment is not instantaneous but gradual. For that reason, consecration is a process following a crisis. We present our bodies in the crisis of decision. The transformation takes place in the process of renewing our minds. The renewal is the fact of the continuation of regeneration. Regeneration is the initial and single act done once for all. Transformation is the continuation of regeneration so that we all with open face behold him and in a glass. The glory of the Lord being changed into the same image from glory to glory, even by the Spirit of God. All of a sudden we begin to see the connection. Your face will manifest what's in your heart. 
My mother said, look, you're born with the face you're born with. Your face is your face. But I've come to realize that your face after 50 is pretty much your own responsibility. After 50, whatever you are is what you've made yourself. Your face will eventually manifest what's in your heart. And so the renewal takes place on the inside. It's accomplished by the Holy Spirit to whom we yield our lives. It's not simply the process. It's not simply the process of thinking differently about the world. It's that, but it's also a spiritual transformation. It's a thought process that's informed by God through Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit. Transformation. It's the continuation. And so how do you do this? How do you have a right heart? How do you have a right mind? We put on the mind of Christ. We have the heart of Christ. Empowered by the indwelling, possessing, directing, mastering Holy Spirit inside of us. And Paul says that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Prove is an interesting word. It's the Greek word Dokimadzo. The word means to test, but it had a very special application in the ancient world. It meant to prove by testing. In my coin collection, I have a coin that was minted in the 6th century BC. It's one of the very first coins ever made by human beings on the planet. It was made of gold and electrum that came from a river in the Lycus Valley. And it's about half the size of the nail on the smallest finger on your, on, on your little finger. It's about half that size. On it is a lion and a bull. And there's a punch mark on the reverse. And there's a deep, dramatic cut on the other side. Because someone 2,600 years ago wanted to know if it was real if it was true, if it was valuable. Because even then, the moment you create something that is real, that is valuable, you invite people to create that which is not real, which is not valuable, which is phony. So here, when he says test, it could also actually be translated discern or the ability to choose between not just what's right and wrong but what is right and as again Spurgeon used to say almost right we are to make a commitment a consecration a transformation and that consecration commitment transformation will result in in some wonderful consequences you'll be able to discern what the will of God is It comes freely and naturally with the renewal of your mind. And the reason why it becomes freely and naturally, because you're in harmony with God. You are in harmony with the mind of God and the mind of Christ. He loves you. He's not trying to figure out a way to prevent you from knowing his will. He's trying to get you to a place where you'll embrace his will. And the minimum thing that this passage means that it's his will for you to love him and serve him. 
Paul notes, it's good. How do we find and follow the plan of God and the will of God? It's beneficial. Here's the idea. We don't have to fear the consequences of obeying God. What will happen? Have you ever said to this, well, what's going to happen if I obey God? And the voice says to you, well, if you obey God, you're going to please him. But if I please him, I'm going to make everybody else upset. Yeah, that's true. But note, it's good. It's acceptable. It's perfect. In what sense? It's good because it reflects God's heart. It's acceptable. That means that with our minds adjusted to God's mind, we'll never find God's will an obnoxious thing. That's part of the point. It will be acceptable to both God and the committed Christian and the consecrated Christian. And that becomes part of the point. It's acceptable. And don't make the mistake of thinking it's only acceptable to God. It will be acceptable to you. You see, the moment that you are able to understand and embrace this notion, wow, that honors God, that pleases God, that's acceptable to God, it's okay for you to say, well, if it honors God, pleases God, and is acceptable to God, hey, it's okay by me. This is why you'll often, people will ask me stuff. Well, what do you want to do? I go, go ask my wife. Because if it's honorable and accepting and pleasing to her, I'm on board. (laughs) See, you laugh, but you understand that that's how real relationships work. In the real world. It's perfect. That doesn't mean it's flawless, but it does mean it's complete or mature. Nothing lacking. The idea that Paul is making is nothing wrong. Excuse me. Nothing wrong. So now, let's ask the question again. Are you a Christian? Let's ask this next question. Are you a committed Christian? And if your response is, it all depends on what you mean by that. I mean exactly what Paul says in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Does that commitment manifest itself in joy? in victory, and a confident assurance that as you prayerfully consider the options that are before you, that what you're doing is good to God, it's acceptable to the Lord, it's perfect in his sight. Paul's appeal to commitment is based on mercy, not fear. The act of consecration is voluntary. It's Personal. It's sacrificial. And the argument for consecration, it's reasonable. Because we're the objects of his love and grace and mercy. We're the subjects of redemption. And because our commitment is based on mercy and we are allowed to make that commitment, we have a new attitude. And the new attitude is a refusal to conform to this world, a desire to be transformed on the inside. And then we experience a new achievement, a practical commitment, a spiritual consecration, which results 
not only in a new way of thinking, but in a new way of living. And so Paul argues, that's how you serve them. And that's how service and serving will prove God's will. Do you want to know God's will? Start serving. Start now. Serve each other. Minister to one another. Encourage one another. Find reasons to give to each other instead of get from each other. And all of a sudden, this thing called the will of God will not seem all that mysterious to you. Do you remember when you were a kid and you learned the Pledge of Allegiance? You'd put your hand on your heart. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America. You may not have thought deeply or profoundly about the pledge that you were making. And it wasn't until a crisis that you became aware of just what it means to make a commitment. Crisis will often determine the level, the extent, and the profound effect that commitment has. The committed Christian is something unique and rare in the world in which we live. But it was never meant to be that way. The committed Christian was always supposed to be the normal Christian. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we know that in our service and submission to you, that, Lord, we'll begin to understand the mind of God and the heart of God, the mind of Christ and the heart of Christ. Lord, each and every one of us have to make difficult decisions. Do I stay or do I go? Do I give or do I keep? Do I walk towards or do I walk away? And so, Heavenly Father, we pray that the pressures that are put on the outside and the reality of the presence of Jesus on the inside will give us the ability to walk in the direction that you're calling us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand. Thank you.